You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and today we're speaking with Dr. Francisco Guajardo. Francisco is a leading voice in bilingual, biliteracy, and bicultural education. He was born in Mexico and raised in a small Texas border town. As a professor of education at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, Dr. Guajardo introduces young people to history, anthropology, and the culture of place. Like Tom on our team, Francisco is an advisor to the Teton Science Schools. At a recent meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, they spoke over breakfast. Let's listen in to learn more. All right, Francisco Guajardo, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Good morning, Tom. What a, a treat to have you here. We're both together at the Teton Science School on a snowy but uh, sunny Teton morning. Yeah, that's for sure. I, uh, you know, when I woke up yesterday, it was uh, the grounds were filled with snow, so it was. A, we had about six inches of new snow. Six inches yesterday. Uh, I don't think we have any new snow today, so that's 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 a different day. So I grew up along the Texas-Mexico border. I was born in northern Mexico in September of 1964, and on the last day of the year, 1968, my family came from Mexico to South Texas, to what is known as the Rio Grande Valley. And so I grew up in a small town called Elsa, Elsa. And I, uh, I grew up in Ed Couch Elsa schools in the community of Elsa, and, and so then, you know, I, I graduated from high school, went away to college, and came back home to become a school teacher. So you, you go to UT? I went to UT at the age of 18. I, um, 80, the fall of 83 is when I landed at the University of Texas. I did uh, an undergraduate degree in English, and then I took a master's degree in, in history. And but then we, years later, I came back for a PhD. But we should be clear, did you go to UT Austin? I went to the University of Texas at Austin, yes. Because you're, you're now a professor at uh, UT Rio Grande. I'm a professor now at the University of Texas in Rio Grande Valley, which is a school that iterated uh, by taking up two sm- smaller schools, the University of Texas at Brownsville and the University of Texas Pan American, which is where I was a faculty member at UT Pan American. one of the two legacy schools of UT RGV. But, yeah, no, but for, for many years, UT... Austin was the UT, right. and part of why the expansion of UT schools, I mean, obviously, is because higher education, you know, is always looking to expand, but there are also lawsuits involved, lawsuits for uh, where, the, where UT and A&M were, were sued and told by the Texas Supreme Court that they needed to diversify, so then they spread out into places of, you know, where minority students were, so A&M took over Prairie View A&M to get their black student rolled up. UT took over uh, UT Pan, uh, Pan American University, and so it became UT Pan American, more brown students, you know, those kinds of things, political things, but also it's, it's good for development in, in regions. What did you do your uh, doctoral studies in? Um, I went back to, I was 35 years old when I went back to UT at Austin, and so my, my degree is actually an ad hoc interdisciplinary degree PhD that brings in history, because I once upon a time was an ABD in history when I was 25 years old, um, that brings in anthropology. This is the ad hoc interdisciplinary part of it. So I have anthropology training, so I'm an ethnographer as well. That brings in curriculum and instruction, and then my home department is educational administration. 
I was in the schools already and I was already doing leadership work, administrative work. The high school where I grew up in, in my alma mater, when I, where I came back to work for 12 years. And so my PhD is in education administration. That's the home base, but it's an ad hoc interdisciplinary PhD. So I can actually teach in a history department in higher ed. I can teach in anthropology, but I, I taught in the college of education. Uh, you're, you're a noted expert in, in place-based education. I guess I'm curious when you became conscious of the power of place. I think that my awareness was a very formative awareness, and it really is born out of how my mother and my father raised us. I'm one of four boys, and and so, you know, they were, my parents were uh, storytellers, to be sure. Uh, my mother, you know, a storyteller through her own, you know, kind of nurturing duties. Uh, and she, my mother was extraordinary with that. She always brought people from the neighborhood together, all the kids, you know, from the neighborhood. I grew up in the federal housing projects in, in Elsa. And, and so my mother always ensured that all the kids from the projects came to the house and she organized everybody and then just let us loose. And so then we did our own self-organizing, which is kind of interesting. The whole idea of self-organizing and how people do that in communities. But my father, my father was really the quintessential storyteller. My, my father always kept a little notebook. So he kept notebooks over a period of time, years. And so through these notebooks, he always took, you know, notes on, on the job that he had and then the next job and that sort of thing. So my father documented his life to the day. Mm. And so I remember when, uh, when I was an undergrad UT at Austin, I was an English major, and so I thought that, you know, I needed to study English in England. Mm. So I got this fellowship to study at this place called Brazenos College in Oxford, part of the Oxford University system. So I went because I was fascinated with the Bard, you know, and I was fascinated also with stuff that happened, like, in northern England, like in Howard. So because I wanted to, you know, see where the Bronte sisters grew up. I wanted to walk the streets of London like Dickensian characters did. I was fascinated by all that stuff. So I went to do that, and it was while I was at Brazenos College that I really had my moment of clarity. That moment of clarity was really about the stories of my father and my mother. It wasn't about Shakespeare. It wasn't about Dickens. It wasn't about you know, Charlotte Bronte. It was about my father and my mother. So when I got back home, I landed at JFK Airport, and I called home. I called my father, and you know, I said to my father that I had been reflecting a lot on the stories, my mother's stories. And I reminded him of those little notebooks that he had. And I asked my father if he had written stories, you know, of, of his own life. And he said he hadn't. But he had notes. I asked him if he would. And so my father took the next year of his life to write his autobiography. My father had gone up to the fourth grade in rural Mexico. Um, and then, you know, I swam across the river. You know, when, when the river was at its peak before the dams of 1953, 1954. So my father was, you know, the, the, the sort of typical Mexican man who at the, and really before he was a man, at the age of 17, he was crossing, crossing the river, swimming across the river to come work. And then he, you know, swim back or as he sort of tells the story in a very humorous way, sometimes he and his brother would, flag down the border patrol, you know, to get a right from them back to the river. That's how it was. Wow. <laughs> different, day, different day, right? Uh, and so there was a symbiotic kind of relationship between Mexicans and the border patrol for yeah. a long time. It was extraordinary. 
So my father, who at the time, because my father had been a laborer his entire life, but then my father landed the, his dream job, you know, when he was in his 50s. And his dream job was as a janitor at Ed Couch Elementary School. And so during that time, my father as a janitor was also a scavenger of sorts. So my father went through every trash can of the classrooms that he cleaned up. Hmm. And he would always look in the trash can to see what what teachers were throwing away that was good. And so he would collect stuff that he thought was good. And then the next morning, he would show it to the principal to see if he could get permission to keep stuff. Hmm. And so, so my father asked the principal one day if he could keep these scrolls, these big scrolls. And so the principal said yes. The principal would often tell my father, no, you can't take that, Mr. Wahadley, but you can take that, whatever. And so my father wrote his autobiography on big scrolls that he took from elementary classrooms at Ed Couch also, or at Ed Couch Elementary. And so then my father wrote this thing that is the, I think, the most prized family heirloom, and that is his autobiography. And so those stories... I think cemented a certain consciousness with my brothers and with me about this idea of place. And so for me, coming to place as a vital and very significant way of understanding, I think was was developed over a period of years. It wasn't a conference that I went to, somebody said place. It was a conference I went to, somebody said place, and I said, oh, okay, it makes sense. All these years, you know, being raised, yeah. you know, by this woman and this man, makes sense. Now I have a framework. But it was the same thing with culturally relevant for me. You know, it was because it was this this accumulation of years of, you know, reflecting and, and, and sort of thinking about things and being in dialogue with, with my father and my mother and my brothers. So it was a formative thing that then clicked, in, you know, in certain ways. Uh, you started a center at uh, UT RGB. Maybe you could tell us um, what you're trying to do there. When, uh, when UTRGV was created by the legislature in 2013 to taking these two satellite schools, University of Texas satellite schools, Brownsville and Pan American, as I described earlier, the Board of Regents laid out a set of principles where the Board of Regents of the University of Texas said, we want this new university to explore all these different things, including bilingualism, biculturalism, and biliteracy. Now, my work as a professor and as a researcher for years had focused on issues, even as a high school teacher. You know, I, I started an oral history project with my high school students back in the 90s. You know, we took inspiration from the Foxfire Project. We took inspiration from different parts of the world where people were really um, examining their own local stories as a source of understanding who they were, how they were, and to build, you know, power, individual, but also community power. So the oral history project I had been doing, we had been toying around with issues of bilingualism, issues of culture, issues of literacy in K-12. When I came to higher ed, I brought this kind of awareness with me. And so then it all came to a head in 2013 when regents say, why don't you explore bilingualism, biculturalism, biliteracy in higher ed? And so I thought, oh, my God, this is extraordinary. Not only me. I mean, there was a bunch of people I was working with who. We're floored by this because yeah. in our institution, our institution in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s had been using the speech test to remediate wow. Mexican-American students. So the university was telling them that they needed to change the way they spoke and the way they used language. And so for the university then 
to say, we want you to explore this was really the mark of a new day. And so then, so what, what I did with some of my colleagues is that we built an institute. We call it the B3 Institute to develop mm-hmm. bilingualism, biculturalism, and biliteracy in higher education. And this university has 28, 29,000 students. So we're building the bilingual university right now. Um, we're, we're here at the Teton Science School. Why do you serve on that advisory board? What is it that you appreciate about this place and these people? So the way that I come to the Teton Science School Advisory Committee is through an old friend of mine named Greg Smith. So I first met Greg through email some 20 years ago when he he was writing an article, I think, for Fight Happen, I think it was, or maybe you know, he was writing a book perhaps. I mean, he does all of those things. So Greg sent me an email because he had heard of the work we were doing in South Texas out of my high school through a program that I started out of my classroom in the 90s called the Yano Grande Center for Research and Development. It was a college prep program, but through place-based kinds of you know pedagogies. So Greg sent an email, and we corresponded. He wrote about our work. And then many years later, Greg would recommend my name to the Teton Science Schools to, uh, to invite me to be part of this advisory committee. And I think what Greg was thinking is that this Teton Science Schools that really looks very white, can use an alternative voice to maybe create a little bit of, you know, tension so that people could think differently or maybe think differently through maybe my ideas because they were already thinking about diversity and inclusion. Right. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's a difficult proposition, especially if you don't live that. So that's why, that's why. And for a little snowshoeing. <laughs> I, I did that yesterday for the first time <laughs> in my life. Yeah, that was, that was fun. All right. I want to do a lightning round. Um, I want you to describe the pictures that come to mind when we talk about place-connected learning. And let's let's talk about little kids and then maybe intermediate age and then older kids. So when you think of primary age kids, what role should place play? What pictures come to mind? Imagination, uh, creativity, name, fun, play, backyard. You know, just just a fulfilling life. Yeah, but really connected to uh, place. Lots yeah, of discovery-based I mean, learning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, that's uh, fun comes from you know where you are. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes where you are is really your imagination. But you know, your imagination is gonna be sparked based on your experiences, based on things yeah. that you have access to somehow. All right. Let's think about fourth or fifth grade. So, ten-year-old kids. What what pictures come to mind and Place-connected learning. Yeah, kinesthetic stuff, um, you know, backyard, play, imagination. I, I don't know that it's much different, except that I think that, that there's there's something going on with kids at that age, you know, where they're, I think they're playing with language in much more complex and sophisticated ways. I mean, kids, you know, when they're four and five, they're playing with language as well, but now they're, they're putting together ideas, and a lot of those ideas are really born out of, you know, what they're doing in their backyard, and they're playing and they're having fun. Because they're like integrated with their place, I think that you know it, it unleashes a different kind of imagination for kids at that age. All right, high school kids. How, how should high school kids be interacting with their community? Yeah, I mean, when, when high school kids are listening to stories of elders, when high school kids are forming their own stories, when high school kids are coming of age, you know, now having gone through puberty and that sort of thing, they're developing a certain consciousness. They're developing a set of values. You know, they're what what do they stand for? What do they believe in? This is when they're forming those kinds of ideas. And, and if they're examining place, and those ideas can be 
based on who they're who they are and where they're from. And oftentimes, if they do that, then they have this respect for their place. They're also imagining, you know, themselves in the world right, in very concrete ways. So I think that's very exciting. They're finding their voice, you know, as intellectuals, as citizens. And so the place has so much to do with how they find their voice, how their voice will look, how it will sound. Where can people learn more about your work and, and any other resources on uh, place-based learning that, uh, that you appreciate? Well, I appreciate this place where we are now, the Teton Science so, School. TetonScience.org. Yeah. yeah, I mean, TetonScience.org, I think, is, uh, is, is a leading place in this country and probably in the world. You know, the, the team here is thoughtful. They've got it together. I mean, they, this is what they do. They not only think about place-based pedagogy, but they practice it and they build an institution. And so there are many lessons to be learned from this place. And they bring the world here, you know, and they go out also, you know, different places across the country. So I think this is a model. Uh, there are some models that haven't worked, you know, around place-based, but this is a model that has worked well now for 52 years. And so they, I think that their next phase is really, you know, to evangelize based on the work that yeah. they do. Where can they find you online? Uh, they can find me through uh, the website, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley website, B3 Institute. Okay. And then, of course, if anybody wants to send me an email, I'm, I'm not hard to find. Francisco.Wajardo at utrgb.edu. I mean, Great. a long That's what it is. Thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Guajardo for joining us on the podcast today. For more on place-based education, see Giving the Gift of Place, episode 168, which was also recorded at Teton Science School. I love that episode. You really get a feel for place through it. And if you want to keep learning about place-based education, be sure to check out our place-based education series on gettingsmart.com. As always, we have all of that linked in the show notes and on the blog for today's podcast. Stay tuned as we also have a new book on the power of place coming out with ASCD in early 2020. All right, listeners, that's it for today's episode. And as always, thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica and Caroline signing off.